all I need is my family and a bottle of wine and some warm weather, and I'm happy. All of that made me so much happier. Hi, it's Joel Pilger, and you're listening to episode 76 of the Rev Thinking Podcast. Today, my guest is Joey Corinman at the School of Motion, and our topic is Intention in Motion. Welcome to Rev Thinking, the podcast for creative entrepreneurs who know the best way to deal with the future is to create it. This is the conversation between creative leaders and consultants discussing what it really takes to run a thriving creative business. Oscar Wilde said, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist, that is all. Hey there, all you Rev Thinking listeners. It's Joel. Welcome to another podcast. Today, I am with Joey Corinman at School of Motion. Now, I'm actually coming to you from Los Angeles. I'm here in Venice. It's been a great week. Amazing how much I am in L.A., these days, and I still love it. <laughs> um, but today I'm talking to Joey, who's in Florida. He actually runs a team that's very virtual in the sense that they're spread all over the country and maybe around the world. More on that when we get into the show. But Joey runs School of Motion, which is an online school teaching motion design and animation. And they've really taken off in the past few years to be a go-to resource for people that want to learn these skills and get into our industry. But the cool thing about Joey's story is that was not always his dream. His goal was not to start School of Motion when he got started in his career. And when I was on his podcast at the School of Motion, uh, this was maybe earlier this year, maybe late last year, I heard about Joey's story that he was at a uh, motion design studio in the in New England and had a career that was active and vibrant but it wasn't working for him and I thought what was so interesting about his story was as that path that he was on was increasingly unfulfilling and not fitting his desired lifestyle and working for his family he made some really interesting moves and choices that required a lot of intention and that's why I'm calling this episode today, intention in motion, because you're going to hear that word intention come up a lot. How do you live with intention? How do you manage not just your job with intention, but your career with intention? Because ultimately that plays into something even larger called your life. In fact, I made an Instagram post about this concept right after this episode we recorded. So if you go to my Instagram feed, you'll see this little diagram where there's a job, it's a small circle and a bigger circle, which is your career, and then an even bigger circle called life. And Joey's story really illustrates how you will achieve your goals if you stay focused on them and you focus on your genius and you delegate everything else. But it may not look like what you thought it was going to look like. And staying open to what the future holds and realizing your dreams in a different way, your goals, your aspirations, seeing them come to life uh, in, in something maybe perhaps unexpected ways is part of the joy of moving forward and finding a successful path in not only your job or your career, but also in life. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Joey. Let's get into it. So where in the world are you today? Uh, well, I am uh, just outside of Sarasota, Florida, 
and I'm staring down the barrel of a uh, Category 3 hurricane headed my way. Oh, so uh, that's where I am. <laughs> category 3. So is this part of the joy of being a Floridian is that uh, every year or two you get to face those crazy storms and tsunamis and other adventures? Yeah, I mean, it is pretty cool, but uh, to be honest, this will only be the second hurricane to hit me if it actually does. The last one was two years ago, and I'm on the west coast of Florida, so like it usually clobbers Miami, kind of dies, and then just turns into a rainstorm over Sarasota. Uh, so this one, who knows? I'm, I'm not too worried. A couple years ago, I actually put on my storm shutters, which makes me an official Floridian. Wow. It's kind of like the, you know, the rite of passage. Yeah, I was going to say that. So you've been initiated into the whole hurricane thing. And now is this, let's say this hurricane actually does full on hit you. Does this affect school of motion? Like, does this mean batten down the hatches and tell everybody to move and move out? And you've got a few days where you have to shut down? Uh, I mean, that it would be kind of nice in a way if that was the case, because it almost be like, uh, you know, a snow day at school. Uh, but no, I'm actually the yeah. only person I'm, I'm the only person I think in the entire school of motion ecosystem who lives in Florida. Actually, that's not true. We have a, a teaching assistant, Frank, who lives in Miami. Um, other than that, there, uh, there are no other Floridians and we're a totally remote company. We have been since the beginning and we are up to, oh, I'm like losing count, uh, 14 or 15 full-time staff all distributed all over the country. Wow. Well, you're, you're, yeah, you beat me to the punch. Cause that was immediately what I was going to ask next is, oh, okay. So you guys are sprinkled all over the country and how many of them, how many of you are there? That's, that's, that's remarkable. And give, give me a sense. Cause I think people are probably curious, like, well, wait a minute, what the people at school of motion, uh, your default might think, oh, they're all teachers, but I'm guessing that's not the case. What's, what's the mix of your team, what kind of things and activities, roles do they do they take? Sure, yeah. So, um, I, I mean, that's a pretty logical conclusion to jump to because we are an online school. But online schools have a totally, totally different model than traditional schools. So, the way we're set up, uh, you know, the the company was founded by me. So initially, it was just me, sort of teacher slash everything else. Um, and then as we've built up, the model that I've put together is essentially to go out and find the best teachers I possibly can, uh, and then to sort of extract the knowledge out of them to put these courses together uh, and then to run them. And so in order to do that, we need, you know, quite an operation. Uh, so we have a marketing team, we have a student experience team, I have a COO, uh, we have a support staff, we have full-time video editors and producers and, and people like that. Um, so most of the staff is dedicated to either marketing our courses or producing our courses or supporting our courses. Uh, our actual teachers are not full-time. Um, and so we sort of engage them to make a course. We work with them over the course of many, many months. It generally takes the full process can take up to a year. Um, but the real hardcore production usually takes about four or five months. Uh, and then we work with them and they sort of help us train teaching assistants who are also not full-time. They're, uh, they're part-timers. And we sort of assemble this machine that then runs their class over and over and over again. 
without them actually having to teach the class each time. So uh, our full-time staff is sort of like, you know, the marketing, the the production, all of that. Uh, We have a pretty large part-time contingency now. I think we're close to 30 teaching assistants. And those are also fully remote all over the country, all over the world, in fact. I think uh, we have teaching assistants in seven or eight countries now. And our instructors are actually international now, too. We launched a class recently with uh, a Dutch citizen. Um, so yeah, fully international company, but mostly, uh, the teachers are not on staff aside from myself and now EJ Hassenfratz, who is now our, uh, sort of 3d creative director. He's building our 3d curriculum and he's also an amazing teacher, man. Well, I'm sitting here reading this little, you know, quick synopsis of school of motion that, um, says school of motions mission is to provide unequal training to motion designers who want to up their game. Our hybrid approach to online training has been incredibly successful, leading to a ton of growth and amazing results. So that makes me wonder, well, when did you officially start School of Motion and how different are things today? Because you've definitely grown. I mean, when I think of that team size, I have no idea how many courses now are in the on the roster or how many students there are, but give me give me some sense of that. Sure. So it's it's changed quite a bit. So it initially started, and we can go as far back in time as you would like, Joel, but uh, it, it officially started, I think, close to seven years ago now, uh, when I was actually running a studio. And I had sort of gotten very disillusioned and burnt out. And I decided I want to find a way out of the day-to-day grind of running a studio. Uh, and I sort of looked around and saw other people doing these really interesting things in the world of motion design. You know, Andrew Kramer and Nick Campbell and, and guys like that, they had built these businesses supporting the industry. And I thought, that's really cool. So I started a blog and uh, I thought, you know what, I'm going to make tutorials because that sounds fun. And, uh, and, and, you know, Andrew Kramer makes it look so easy. And that's what I did. I, I you know, went on GoDaddy and I typed in a bunch of URLs to see what was available. So I had just watched... Um, that movie School of Rock with Jack Black. And I thought, <laughs> I love I love the name. I was like, that's just so, it's just so clean. So School of Motion was available. And uh, and so I started it. I started recording some tutorials. Uh, literally, like, I was in this weird, this funky house in the middle of Massachusetts at the time. And my wife was trying to go to bed. And the, literally, there's like this little around the corner office that I was in. And she would put earplugs in her ear. And I would make tutorials. Uh, so that's where it started. Uh, very, very small and there was kind of an inflection point about two and a half years in uh, where I sort of discovered the eventual product that would make us successful, which is our our courses. I tried other things. I tried selling a plugin that didn't work. Uh, I tried having sponsors, sponsor content, and that wasn't really working either. Uh, and then I came up with this idea for making a course And essentially, after sort of running the numbers, I thought, you know, if I just do this like everybody else and make a video course and sell it for a hundred bucks, I'm going to have to sell a ridiculous amount of these things to make this my full-time job. I'm not going to be able to support, you know, I had kids at the time and a mortgage, all that stuff. Uh, And so I said, how can I make a class that's worth, you know, at the time, I think our classes were 700 bucks. How can I make them worth 700 bucks? And so, you know, when you sort of read the synopsis and the word hybrid approaches in there, um, I know like someone hearing that or reading that, they might think it's all kind of marketing speak, but it really is a pretty unique approach that we have. We have uh, these really, really dense, really, you know, fully thought out uh, courses that are video based, but there's a live component. And 
We have teaching assistants that are critiquing student work. They're providing tech support. There's these weekly videos that are recorded literally like for each session, like uniquely. So the students are hearing their names called out when they do something good. Uh, there's these, this like live, um, you know, student group that's happening the whole time. Uh, and so it's this interesting hybrid of a very scalable business model because it's video-based teaching, which scales to infinity. But part of it isn't scalable. There is this human component that doesn't scale very well, but it makes it so much more effective, like an order of magnitude more effective than, you know, your typical online class. And so that realization happened about two and a half, maybe three years in. And that is the school of motion that everyone sees now. From there, it's been about, I don't know, probably four years and we've grown really scarily fast <laughs> to, to put it mildly um yeah so now now we're uh now we're here I'm still trying to hang on to the rocket and are you having fun yes i'm definitely having fun i will say that uh i have gotten really good at handling stress though I, <laughs> you know I, you know it's really it's funny like i've um you know, I've been on a, on a bunch of podcasts, you know, sort of uh, for entrepreneurs and stuff like that. And what I always try to do is present as honest, uh, you know, sort of recounting of this tale as I can. I am not going to lie. Like, it is amazing to have something like this work and then grow. And, you know, all of that, uh, all of the amazing things that it affords you when you have a successful business, all of those things are wonderful. Most people don't really talk about how stressful it can be. You know, as an example, I think it's so funny because so many things happen so fast. I can't remember if it was this Monday or last Monday. I had to lay off an employee. Mm. I then immediately had to go into another difficult conversation with someone that was making a class for us. There's lots of money on the line. Conversations obviously can be difficult. Uh, right after that, I had to have a meeting with a producer because we're falling behind. It's, you know, that's the CEO's job. So in those days, if you ask me, are you having fun? I'd say, hell no, I'm not having fun today. But today I'm in a great mood. I'm working on a lesson for a new class. Uh, we just got some pretty awesome news about, uh, you know, some future classes we're going to be doing. And it's days like this where I'm, I'm like, I'm the luckiest guy in this whole industry. I can't believe I get to do this. Well, it sounds like you've been able to make a, a conversion or a leap that is, that's rare. And that is... You were a motion designer years ago, and then you had these years where you were running your own studio. And of course, I'm excited to sort of unpack that. But now your day-to-day -day job is being the leader. And I'm guessing you spend 98% of your time really running this business and being that CEO and, and playing that part. And you've set those other things aside. So it sounds like what I would call your genius has evolved over the years and that you have this fortunate situation now where you're, you're, you're loving what you're doing now and it produces big results and it, it energizes you other than the days you have to fire someone, of course. Right. Um, so am I correct in sort of what I'm hearing? Totally. Yeah. So um, something that, and, and I know that you know this uh, and I, I, you know, I've interviewed a lot of studio owners on my podcast. And so I, I've sort of seen this in them too. When you start your own business and especially if it's successful, you have to basically reinvent yourself every, I mean, I guess it depends how fast you go. I feel like I've completely reinvented myself about four times since School of Motion started to work. And I've mm -hmm. done business coaching and I'm currently working with this amazing company uh, called Reboot. It's almost like it's executive coaching, but it's almost like therapy because so much of what it takes to 
run a business like this, especially a remote business where um, you have to work really hard to make sure that everything's transparent and that people know that they're doing a good job or if they're not and that kind of stuff. And for a people pleaser like myself, that's really difficult. And so, uh, yeah, I've definitely had to completely shift my focus and, and especially the things about myself that I need to work on. Um, and, and one other thing I'll say too, Joel, is that I don't know how, how rare this is, but I've, you know, talking to people in my industry who run studios or who have successful businesses supporting the industry. Uh, I feel like a lot of them sort of started the business for a different reason than I did. I started school of motion because I was essentially running a studio and found that I didn't like it. And it wasn't that I, mm-hmm. I mean, there were things about running the studio I didn't like, but it was more the lifestyle of running a studio that I didn't like. And so I went through this like crisis of, of you know, ego death almost, where I was like, I've worked so hard my whole career, which I mean, at that point, it wasn't that long of a career, maybe, you know, eight, 10 years. Uh, I've worked so hard to get here and I'm here and my bank account is where I want it to be and I'm miserable. Uh, and so School of Motion was initially supposed to be a passive income lifestyle business. I was like, I just want to wake up somewhere warm next to my wife and go have breakfast with my kids and then do something I enjoy and pay the bills. That's it. I, I really scaled down my ambition. And ironically, in doing that, <laughs> I started this company that has now just completely dwarfed everything I ever thought it would be um, and is still growing and I, and I suspect will be for a long time. So yeah, so I mean, it was, there was definitely intent on my part aiming here. I didn't aim as high <laughs> as we've gotten, um, but it was definitely like a conscious effort. And what was, um, what was the name of your studio? So the studio was called Toil, which is ironic. Ironic. Yes. <laughs> yeah, was, of course. It? Ironic. Yeah, Toil. And uh, the, web- the website's still up. It's toilboston.com. And, um, and it lived on for a little while after I left, actually. Um, but I think it's, it's basically kind of winded down at this point. But the work is still out there, and you can see it. Well, believe me, I can totally relate to the thing you mentioned earlier about as an entrepreneur, I would say all, all great entrepreneurs have coaches or mentors. But I find a lot of time, a lot of my time is spent in being a therapist. Um, this totally. is like just part of my, it's part of my life. And it's, it's something that I love. And I can see that you've benefited from that as well, that having, because being a business owner is a, it's a lonely road. Uh, it's co- constantly challenging. And I especially want to put a little highlight or star on the thing you said about reinventing, because I would say anyone that wants to run a business like a motion design studio should be prepared to essentially reinvent yourself every two years, maybe every three. Uh, And that can be so maddening. I mean, I know in my journey of 20 years, you know, once you've reinvented for the seventh or the eighth or the ninth time, you're like, seriously, I'm so over this. But some people might thrive on that for another decade or two. Not me. I wanted to, I wanted to convert all that I had and yeah. in, into something else. So I'm curious when you were running toil and you started what is now school of motion, was it purely like a side hustle? Like, Oh, I'm going to keep running my, my studio, but I want some passive income over here. And then was that, was that essentially the goal? Sure. So, okay. So let me clarify a little bit about toil. So 
Toil was, you know, Toil was my studio. The the structure of it, and we can get into this too if you want to, that there was some structural things about it that I think contributed to me eventually feeling like it wasn't a great fit. So I, I decided after years of freelancing, I wanted to start a studio. It's the natural order of things, right? That's just, that's how yes, I thought. Yes, of course. Uh, and so <laughs> I started... Um, you know, I knew I, I was in Boston at the time. Boston uh, is still to this day a very small town for post-production. Everybody knows everybody. And so I knew all the people who owned the post shops and I knew who, you know, who was actually doing motion graphics at the time. And there really was only one great studio in Boston at the time, which was Viewpoint Creative. Uh, and they're right. still around. And uh, But they weren't in Boston. They weren't servicing the ad agency world at all. Most I don't think any of their clients were in Boston. And so I saw this opening and I said, you know what? Boston needs a motion design studio. So I started taking meetings around town with uh, post shop owners because I figured, you know, in Boston, and this just sort of shows you like the mentality I had, which in hindsight, I think was was incorrect. Um, I thought if I'm going to service ad agency clients, uh, they are going to expect the works. They're going to expect a big office. Um, mm. You know, it's going to have to, there's going to have to be a Starbucks within one block. I'm going to need, you know, producers and runners and, and all these things. And I don't really want to uh, put up, you know, or, or like find a bank to loan me half a million bucks to start this thing. Uh, and so I, I went around and I met up with uh, these two editors who were running a very successful editing shop at the time. It was right in downtown Boston, right across the street from Arnold Worldwide's headquarters. and. Mm. And it was kind of the perfect setup. And when I met with them, we instantly hit it off. I knew one of them from freelancing and they were great. And they had this amazing vision that matched mine. We want to start a high-end motion design shop in Boston. And we've already got this great editing business. We've already got the office. We have extra room. We have you know producers and we're profitable so we can invest in this. So why don't we bring you in and the three of us will, will essentially be partners in this uh, motion design studio. So I was not an owner. I had no ownership in Toil, but I was the creative director. I, I ran it and I had sort of like a financial incentive for it to, to do well, right? Gotcha. So yeah, so that was the setup. And so about, I would say three and a half years in, um, we got to this inflection point. We were actually profitable, um, which I've learned is <laughs> that in and of itself is, is, is uh, an accomplishment. Um, but we were profitable after two years. We had, uh, I had, I think three juniors working under me. We had a producer, we had an executive producer and we were starting like st things were starting to click at some point. I realized what I was going to have to do to get over the hump, which was, mm. and this, most of this came down to things like us having a ridiculous amount of overhead, <laughs> like our monthly nut was terrifying because of our location and you know we did this huge build out um and built a roof deck and all these things that we thought we needed uh and, and then any, any debt yeah what's that yeah i mean like was there, was there any, any debt involved in 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 that build out and all that yeah so uh the the two owners um colin and kevin they i'm assuming they financed that i mean they uh they had mm -hmm. a long-term lease on the space and and i'm sure it was financed to do it because it, it must have cost a ton um, and in the end, uh, I mean, many years later now that, that space is, uh, you know, been, been subleased out, but, you know, so, so there was this, this feeling of like, okay, to get to the next level, what I started to realize was we need to be doing what Buck is doing. We need to be investing mm -hmm. heavily in, uh, you know, spec work and 
you know, these sort of studio projects to show off our chops because we were in the position that every studio in Boston finds themselves in. When they can afford to go to New York, they go to New York. When they can afford to go to LA, they go to LA. The only reason they stay in Boston is either you have something that LA and New York doesn't have or you're cheaper. And we, we felt like we had the talent to be an alternative to any shop, but the problem was you have to prove that by doing something for free. And our overhead was really high and it was very difficult for us to, to do that. And so what ended up happening was uh, we ended up just finding a lot of bread and butter work, a ton of bread and butter work, which, you know, I, I'm sure you know this, Joe, like after a while, it's kind of like, what, why did, why am I doing this? This is not what I got into this for. Uh, you have to there have this go. good balance. And we were just sort of unable to ever find that balance. And on top of that, because uh, Toil was built on the back of a successful editorial shop. Um, and so we were sort of beholden to them too, um, which like, and totally rightfully so. I mean, you know, the owners of Toil owned that shop. But what that meant mm -hmm. was if, if they had a client that brought them editorial work. And, you know, in those days, it wasn't even that long ago, but uh, editorial work paid a hell of a lot more than motion design to my chagrin, <laughs> you know, the, uh, you <laughs> of know, course. You, yeah, you know, like, uh, I, I mean, for commercial work, sometimes it'd be like, you know, 2,500 bucks a side is, is what they called it, which was basically five grand a day, um, you know, to, to edit, to sit with a name editor and edit spots and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And motion design, that was not the case. And so what happened is these clients would come in and they'd say like, Hey, we have this internal video. It's for the CEO of Merrill Lynch. Uh, and you know, I just found out about it yesterday. It's due in two days. It's a three minute edit with graphics all over it, bar charts and stuff like that. And Toil would, would essentially be told like, you know, this is going to be a gigantic check for Accomplice and it needs all these graphics. Uh, and so we just need you to do it. And so we didn't have the um, really the ability to turn down things like that in favor of saying, you know what, how about we don't do that and just take the month and do something really badass and market it and promote it. Um, we were never able to pull that up. So all of that to say, I was just sort of, I'd gotten to the end of my rope at that point. I was like, you know, I, I'm not an owner. So, and I think if I had been, if I actually had equity, I don't think I would have started school of motion, to be honest, because mm. I, I felt guilty enough having these thoughts. It was like really hard for me to wrap my head around like, Oh my God, like these, you know, these two guys, they took so much risk and they put faith in me and we've built this thing and everyone's proud of it. But secretly, like I'm getting up in the morning and I'm dreading going in. Um, and it was like, it was really dark to be honest. I mean, I, there was other things going on in our life at the time too. There was like, our family was having some issues, but, uh, but really the stress of knowing, you know, the path I'm on 10 years from now, uh, mm -hmm. am I going to be in a place that I'm happy? And I knew the answer was no. Um, that's where, that's when I was sort of like, okay, I have to find a way out. And I had, and I, and I, and the problem was I had golden handcuffs on by that point. <laughs> um, and it was really, well, I, it was really tricky. I think you're, you're likely describing a common trajectory in our industry. Yeah. Um, so I think it's worth, it's worth noting here because I, of course I work with creative entrepreneurs that are owners, right? Um, exclusively, but they all have a lot of employees and I see you as a type where there's a guy or a gal 
graduates from School of Motion or uh, some other school, gets that first job, and then runs into this sort of brick wall called, yeah, but we're running a business here, and your priorities and your wants and dreams and desires uh, are secondary to this thing of we're running a business and we've got to make money. And then you wake up one day, like you did, and you realize, wow, I'm animating charts and graphs every day for whatever brand that I don't really care about. This, you know, there's more, there's more to this life. I want to do amazing work. And then you face this crisis of, well, can I realize this dream at this company or do I go start my own studio? So that leads me to ask, when you started entertaining leaving or doing something different, was one of your first thoughts, I'm going to go start my own studio so I can spend a month doing cool projects and get to do whatever I want, which we all know is somewhat of an illusion as well. We can unpack that. Right. But was that part of your thought process? Or did you immediately say, no, I'm going to do something in online schooling and training and what have you? Yes, good question. Uh, honestly, the thought of starting my own studio, like really my own studio at that point, it was I don't even think that entered my head one time. And I think it was because, uh, you know, A, I was burnt out, but also I, I mean, you know, it's interesting. It's like, you can't A, B test life. So mm -hmm. I don't know where I would be if I didn't have the experience of going through, you know, ramping up toil, getting it profitable, building a team, and then like deciding that it wasn't for me. It's, you know, when you're in that situation, um, I don't know. It's almost like you're just kind of like fighting, fighting for survival there. Uh, and, and so the thought of jumping into the same situation never entered my head. And just to, just to kind of like add some color to that, really all I was thinking was I want out. Uh, I want a way out where, you know, I'm not blowing up my entire life. Uh, and, and ironically, that's what it took essentially is blowing up my entire life to be able to, really make a change. It was one of the hardest things. My, my wife and I, uh, I mean, it's funny when we tell our friends the story that they're like, we we can't imagine doing what you did, but essentially we had to like sell our house. You know, I had to go tell my business partners, like I'm leaving this company and I knew it would probably kill it. Um, there, there was this whole process, but in the beginning I was just like, I want out. I literally bought a book on computer programming and I'm like, I'm going to make an iPhone app. Cause in the, in those days it was like, you can make an iPhone app. <laughs> and if it hit, I was like, I just want to find something else. And, and you know, it's, it's funny. One of the things that um, I remember the most vividly about those years is that, uh, you know, Massachusetts, very expensive state to live in. And our office was right in the middle of downtown Boston. And so there was no way we could live anywhere close to it. Uh, my wife is from Massachusetts and her family lives close to Worcester, which is in the middle of the state. So yeah, we lived in it. Yeah. We lived in a town called Westboro. It was like, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes from Worcester. And I would take the commuter rail train every morning and I would have to, ca I don't remember the exact times, but it would, it would take me about an hour and a half door to door. So I had three hours every single day, just commuting. And about an hour of that was on a train. So I had two hours each day on a train just to like, you know, just to ponder life and what I'm doing. Yeah. And what I ended up doing was a teaching myself computer programming, which it's hilarious. Like I actually, uh, I was, I did this long enough where I actually programmed and created apps that toil was using like our entire project management software. I made it. Um, I built all these little tools and it's funny because I don't program at all anymore, but 
that enabled me to build V1 of School of Motion. Uh, then once I started, um, you know, realizing, okay, this is not for me. Like I'm not really a computer programmer. I'm just pretending. Um, right. Yeah, that's when I said, okay, I want to find something that I'm good at. And I knew that I was good at teaching because that was my literally the, my favorite thing to do at Toil was to sit with juniors, to sit with interns and to teach them stuff. Um, and so I just sort of started doing that. Um, but until we literally took a nuclear bomb and just like blew up our life, uh, nothing really happened. There wasn't a whole bunch of traction. So that's interesting because when I put yourself, well, first of all, I can relate, uh, on some level because when I, most people don't know when I was running my studio for 20 years, I had an hour and a half commute like you. It's brutal. Yeah. And it introduced some incredibly difficult compromises uh, in in my life and on my family. So there was a very, very heavy price to pay there that I won't go into because we're interviewing you today. But it, yeah, I can completely relate. And I think too, it's, it's always nice to hear stories like this because I'm sure people meet you now, they look at School of Motion and they sort of assume, oh, how cool, isn't that great for you? Isn't that nice? But the journey uh, I'm sure has been rich with challenges as well as successes along the way. Definitely. So when, when you look back now and you say, okay, toil was great. It was also not so great. What, what are some of the lessons, right? Like some of the, what are some of the hindsight observations you have when you look back and say, well, okay, here's what, here's what I, or what we as a studio did wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, as far as <laughs> Is what, it a long list? <laughs> well, I mean, so, so I don't, I, I don't want to paint the wrong picture. So my time at toil, like the people I worked with, I love them to death. Like my, my two business partners, Kevin and Colin, like I learned so much from them. They are the most amazing people and they're brilliant and they're both amazing editors. And Kevin was like a flame artist. I mean, it was like a dream. Um, all of the issues that I had with toil had nothing to do with the people. The issues were frankly structural um, from day one. I didn't know this until the end, but from day one, it was set up where it wasn't going to work. And so we started toil. I'm trying to remember exactly what year it was probably like 2009, okay. maybe, two, maybe 2008. Okay. So right after the crash and this was basically the beginning of the end of the big post shop. Okay. Now there's still big post shops, especially yeah. in LA and New York. But in Boston, it's, you know, aside from like a few really old ones that have managed, like they own their building or something, there's some reason they can stay around. It's very hard to have these, you know, right in the middle of downtown, super luxurious, expensive offices, and you're ordering from Abe and Louis every day for lunch. You know, that was the way you did business in Boston for decades. I mean, if you yep. were servicing. I remember those days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And what was funny was as I was kind of coming up in my career thinking, oh, my God, look at all this excess. And this is really cool. This whole ad agency scene. It's crazy. Um, All of the all of the artists that were like a generation or two older than me were telling me, oh, kid, you missed the heyday. You know, if you'd been here 20 years ago, there'd be a pile of cocaine on that table. Right. I mean, it was like the stories were insane. And so I think toil was built on the old model. Let's have a big fancy office. I remember going to uh, going to a store with one of my partners to pick out a desk 
for me to work off of because I would actually have to do client supervised motion design sessions sometimes um, Mm -hmm. because we were we were set up that way. So we had, you know, a three thousand dollar couch in my office. My desk cost twenty five hundred dollars was made out of reclaimed wood. It was beautiful. Um, All of these things that were so completely unnecessary and added to the financial stress. It's really interesting. You, <laughs> this might be another guest for you, Joel. Uh, a really good friend of mine in Boston. Her name is Michaela Vandermost. She runs a studio called Newfangled. And before I started Toil, her and I were talking about starting a studio together. And okay. she, had, she had the completely opposite mindset. She's like, I don't want to have an expensive office. I want to put our office in I think she started in Somerville, which is like at the time it was like this really cheap kind of place and no one went there. There were no ad agencies there. No one is going to like take the subway out there. Uh, and she was like, and I, you know, I want to go after local businesses and and I don't want these big budgets. I don't need the headache of it. And I said, well, good luck with that. I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm going to go big. So that's what I did. Uh, Newfangled is now one of the biggest studios in Boston. Uh, production no and po- yeah, she's, you know, um, she saw the writing on the wall and I didn't. That the day of, you know, even an ad agency requiring that the art director can come to your office and sit on a nice couch and be pampered while you make lower thirds for their video, those days are gone. Uh, and if you build a studio based on that model, you're setting yourself up for like probably a short-lived studio, but also a lot of stress. Uh, one of my favorite studios right now is Gunner, and they're based out of Detroit. Uh, yeah. And Detroit is an incredibly inexpensive city relative to you know New York or LA or Boston. Um, and that's one of the reasons they're there. I mean, the, the two founders are from Detroit, uh, but they have intentionally started their studio there and they, they've built their staff there. And that's one of the reasons that they've been able to thrive because their overhead is so much lower than their competitors. They can take much bigger risks. We were never able to do that. So that's, I mean, that's probably the biggest lesson as far as the way Toil was set up. And then the other thing I mentioned of being built on the back of an editorial shop where, I mean, there were a lot of times, there's a, here's one story, right? So uh, I remember this was actually the straw that broke the camel's back, if I'm being honest. Uh, we were getting ready to shut down, uh, for Easter weekend. Now I'm Jewish. I don't celebrate Easter, but like everyone else on my staff was really excited to spend Easter with their family. And, uh, I think it was like, I don't know, Friday, you know, morning or afternoon. And one of the editing shops clients called and said, Oh my God, I hate to do this, but you know, we've got this fire drill. This video has to be done Monday. We have no, it just has to be done Monday. And it's got all these graphics. And this was, you know, that client that like had all this boring work, but paid so much money, paid the bills, kept the lights on. And for the editing shop, you know, it was like, yeah, they kind of can't say no to this. They kind of have to. But for Toil, this client was just, you know, all right, this, this is like, you know, a few pennies every now and again. It's real. This is really like going to the editorial shop. I don't really want to do this. I don't see the point. And, and on top of that, I was going to have to go tell my staff, hey, I know it's Easter weekend, but I'm probably going to need you to come in on Saturday at least oh, yeah. to work on this video. And so uh, we got the call. I sat with my two partners and I said, um, yeah, I say, tell them no. Tell them we can't do it. 
um, they can go find somebody else, right? Like there's other people in town that will do this. We don't need this job. And they said, well, you don't understand. Like, and, and I don't know if they were right in the end, but what they thought was if they said no, that this client would go find somebody else and then they'd never come back because we said no. Yeah. Um, and frankly, yep. there might, there might be some truth to that. I, mean, I know you've probably had those thoughts. Everyone who runs a studio fears that. Uh, Always. And, yeah. And they said, go tell, um, go tell the staff that you might need in this weekend. And I put my foot down and I said, no, <laughs> I said, I'm not doing that. But at that moment I realized like, this is, this is the wrong place. Uh, and so, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I, I speak pretty freely about my disdain for the ad agency world. And I don't know if this is universal, but like that was so common. I mean, almost every week there'd be some version of that where an ad agency would just completely take advantage of us because they could. And the reason they could was structural because we couldn't say no, because our, our overhead was too high. Yeah. You said a really interesting word risk when you were talking about shops like Gunner in Detroit and so forth. And I think that's actually a great, just a thing to to bookmark maybe for another conversation. But the idea of when you're running a business, the overheads can be obviously a huge burden. I mean, every business has them, but when you go to a market that's less expensive, yes, you can quote, have cheaper prices, lower prices, but that's actually not really the advantage. The advantage is you have more capacity for risk. You have more cushion, you have more options. You also can just invest. I mean, that's what risk is, right? You can just invest in more things more, more readily. But I think it's interesting that that in effect was the burden that put you in that situation where you had to then put your foot down and say, this isn't how I want to do life. This is not who I am as a person. Yeah, exactly. And you just kind of hit the nail on the head right there. The, the thing that, you know, you asked me what lessons looking back on, on the toil days I, I could kind of pull from. And, you know, there was some, some really good lessons I learned about what not to do when you're starting a studio. Um, but I think the most important lesson for me, and it's really funny, I was thinking about this. When you came on my podcast, you said something kind of profound. You said, you know, there's your job, but then there's your career, but then there's your life. Right. That last thing, I was, I had never really given its due. All I had cared about up to that point was my career. And I'd never until I kind of broke, sat down and said, what kind of lifestyle do I want? And so at the end of it, you know, literally, I mean, this is a thing that happened. My wife and I sat down one night, probably with a bottle of wine, and we did the uh, the perfect day exercise that Debbie Millman has talked about and Tim Ferriss mm -hmm. and other people. And we literally wrote down, like, what do we want a, a Tuesday to look like five years from now? And it's really interesting because, you know, we wrote down, we want to wake up and it's warm out. <laughs> we live in Florida now. <laughs> we want it. to, uh, I, what I wrote down was I want to ride my bike to work because I was so tired of commuting. Um, and, you know, and if you really go, you know, the full way, you're writing down like how much money's in your checking account? What did you have for breakfast? You know, how many kids do you have? What are they doing? Mm. All of these things we wrote down, every single one of them came true. Uh, and then I did that exercise again, probably three years later. And once again, like everything I wrote down is sort of now happening. So, um, so the, the biggest lesson I learned, and, and this is just, this now defines my life basically is, uh, everything I do is organized around how it's going to affect me and my family's lifestyle. Uh, that is the reason that 
despite all of the headaches and how much harder it makes it, School of Motion is and will always remain a remote company. We will never be, we will never have an office where everyone has to be there and, and any of that. We have, you know, I, I've foregone probably significant growth in the business because I didn't want to do things that would put more stress and more pressure. You know, we've had investors approach us, which if I'd said yes, could have, you know, we could be 10 times as big as we are right now. I didn't want that because my life, like my needs are fairly simple. You know, uh, when you get right down to it, as long as I can exercise and I can hang out with my kids and I don't have to work more than 40 hours a week. Well, I mean, that last one, I'm not super good at, but, <laughs> but theoretically, uh, <laughs> right. you know, like, but, yeah. but I, you know, we, my wife and I, decided what we wanted as opposed to just like staying on the train tracks that we had been on our entire lives. That's what I love. I love that story. We could probably riff for another hour on that. But let me just comment that I thought so interesting was when you made, made your list, you said, you said it was your perfect day yep. list of like what that day looks like. And you said, you know, within three years, all those things came true. But here's what I find so striking is that means at the time you wrote that list, none of the things on that list were true. Correct. So you were not only not living your perfect day, you weren't living any of it. Like so, it was, um, yeah. you were stuck in a, you were stuck in a, obviously a, a situation where you realized, boy, in the future, we want to do things completely differently. And that takes great intention. I think that's the lesson. It doesn't just sort of happen because you keep grinding. You do need to step back, have a perspective, and ask this question, okay, sure, my job's important. Okay, sure, my business, my career is important, but then there's also my life. And you want to know, okay, does do all these things serve my life or you know, or is the tail wagging the dog? And I think you guys obviously had a had a big wake-up call. And to your credit, here you are. And that's that's an amazing transition you've been able to create. Yeah, that word intention is that's the important word right there. I mean, I you know, I'm sure you have this same experience, Joel, where you know, I have friends that are in careers that are like, in my opinion, killing them. Like they're, you know, they're really unhappy, not because they hate their job or anything like that, but because the lifestyle of a corporate lawyer trying to make partner is mm. an objectively shitty one. Like, it's just not mm. like, especially when you have young kids. I mean, it's just a horrible it's a horrible existence unless you really love doing corporate law, which I don't think anybody does. <laughs> I could be wrong. Maybe there are corporate lawyers that truly enjoy writing all those memos, but I could tell you but my you also, friend. Yeah. You also better enjoy all that goes with that because yes. there's a lack of freedom. There's, there's all sorts of compromises that go beyond just the, the work that you're doing. It's how you have to live and how your family has to live and where you have to live and all those things yep. that go with that, right? That can be equally soul crushing. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, what I find, so when I, when I hang out with those friends, and they see school of motion, and, and you know, they're none of them are in the industry. So they don't, they don't really know how big it is or anything like that. But they just see, you know, I, I go to work in I'm in flip flops and shorts and a t shirt right now. I, mm -hmm. I don't even think I own a tie that I bought in the last, like it, the, the newest tie I own is probably six years old. I mean, like I just, you know, the, and that was on my perfect day thing, by the way, was like, I'm wearing flip flops to work every day, you know, and, and, and they see the, the flexibility that we have, you know, when you run your own business and it's remote and, and we also homeschool our kids, which is also a part of this intention. We have, you know, we have a level of flexibility in our life that, um, 
almost all of our friends sort of envy. And when I talk to them, I say, well, you could do that too. You just have to, you know, change what you're doing. You just have to want that and then take the steps to do it. One of my favorite quotes, uh, it's from Scott Adams, the guy that uh, wrote Dilbert. And it's, uh, if you want something, figure out the price then pay it. And I always say that, it's just so profound. Uh, I always say that to my friends and and I'm trying to I'm trying to get them to realize like yeah I know you're a corporate lawyer which means you know you're making one hundred seventy thousand dollars a year and because you're miserable you make yourself feel better by spending that on mm. a nice car a nice house um, you know and your marriage isn't great because you're always stressed and then that creates a bad dynamic and so then you spend money to fix that. And you basically find, and I was in that situation, like, I mean, I, I, that's, that was totally me. Uh, you know, I was making over $200,000 a year, which like, I, I, I thought that would be enough to make me happy in any situation, but it did not. It's very difficult to unspool that. And so what, what I usually try to do is to get people to realize that like, it is possible to unspool everything and not start over, but just kind of course correct. But I think that the way, I don't know, maybe it's like a societal thing, the way we're set up makes it so hard. There's so much pressure for people to just hang on, you know, just hang on because, you know, if you hang on for 12 more months, you're going to get this promotion, Mm. you're going to get a pay bump and that pay bump's going to fix all your problems because now you're going to be able to, you know, and it's like you can kind of trick yourself into thinking that it will get better and it won't if you're on the wrong path. Um, yeah, I, I didn't plan on getting this philosophical, but like I, I feel very passionately about this. I mean, that just the, you know, starting school of motion and, and learning how to run a business and all of that. It's amazing. Um, and I could talk about that all day. But I, the thing that I really get like kind of jacked up talking about is people designing their own life <laughs> instead of, you know, hey, five year old, let me put you on this train tracks called kindergarten. And it points in one direction and just stay on that and you'll be fine. And that's what most people do. Yeah, they uh yeah, and I think when you add kids into that whole equation that you just laid out, right? You've got the big job, you have the whatever the car, the house, marriage, and then all of a sudden kids come into the equation. That idea of oh, let's reset, reboot, what have you. Right. becomes very very difficult because you think, well, that means I failed and my kids are going to be disrupted, and of course, in our American narrative for some reason, we can't disrupt right? We can't change. Uh, that would be the worst thing ever. But the truth is, I mean, there's a, I'm, I'm learning this, maybe you are too. There's short-term pain and then there's long-term gain. And if you can see that, that delta, like you went through this arc of, okay, wow, if I'm going to leave my job and I'm going to start doing this other thing, whether it's school of motion or your other crazy idea, uh, schemes that you had, right? there was a, you knew inside, okay, this is going to take at least six months or a year, maybe it'll take two and it's going to involve moving and shutting down and restarting and living off savings for a while. But guess what? It, it, it didn't kill you. Correct. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, in the long term, now you're actually living. And I think that's, that's, that's commendable. And, and I'm, I'm also just, I got have to quote like our, our slogan at RevThink where we say the best way to deal with the future is to create it. Right. Don't, yes. don't react to it. Yeah. create it. And yep. And I, I think your story is a great example of that. Yeah. One of the, one of the craziest moments was, I mean, you got to imagine, you know, we, we, we were living in our first house, right? And so this was the first house we'd ever bought. We were so proud of it. 
Um, you know, we'd saved and saved and saved for the down payment. We're doing it. We bought this house, had an awesome yard. I built a swing set for my kids. Uh, we're down the, you know, like 15 minutes from the grandparents. I'm running a studio that is, you know, basically my studio and I'm making the money that I've always wanted to make. And I'm like, I don't I, like, I knew I was going to have to destroy all of it. <laughs> like essentially I was terrified. And so we, it was a very, very stressful six months when we made the transition where I, we ended up deciding to move to Florida. I applied for and got a position at the Ringling College of Art and Design where I actually taught uh, full, as full-time faculty for a year. And then we sold our house. My wife and I were like in tears, like at the closing, like uh, we had to tell her family uh, that we were moving to Florida. I had mm-hmm. to go tell my business partners I was leaving the company and moving. Um, it was like the most stressful, awful thing we'd ever been through. Um, and then we have to like live with her parents for a week because our house closed and we weren't moving for a week. And then we get to Florida and like the moving company screwed up and we didn't have anything in our new apartment for like a week. And there was this moment in the middle of it where I'm in Florida and my, you know, we, we went and bought air mattresses because like we needed to sleep on something. And we had a, I think at the time we had a three-year-old and an 18 month old and, Whoa. you know, yeah. And, you know, they're sleeping on air mattresses too. And we're sitting there and it was like, the, the kids are asleep. My wife and I are sitting on this air mattress watching like, I don't know, an iPad or something. Uh, Cause we'd never TV yet. And we bought a bottle of wine and we're sitting there and the Florida sunset is right out the window and the windows open and there's warm air coming in. And I was, and you know, and I, I hadn't even started my job yet, but my job, my salary at Ringling was about like essentially a third of what I'd been making. Mm-hmm. And I was so content. I was like, I don't remember being this happy. Like I didn't, I had no worries. I was like, this apartment is so affordable. You know, I, all I need is my family and a bottle of wine and some warm weather and I'm happy. And it was this crazy, like, and it, and saying it out loud, I'm like, well, duh, isn't that obvious? Like you don't need all these things, but when you're in it, you really don't see it. And so going through that and being not just content, but literally overjoyed almost every day to be making a third of what I used to be. And, but I was riding my bike to Ringling every day and it was warm and I was in flip-flops and I, my schedule was amazing. I had breakfast with my kids every day. All of that made me so much happier than money. Uh, and so that was like, to me, that was the, the biggest lesson I learned going through it was that you just don't really need much. Man, that story, <laughs> it's funny. You, you actually made me really emotional there because that story is actually very beautiful to hear this, you know, this arc that you went through and despite all of that craziness, because if somebody had said, Oh, by the way, you know, six months from now, you're going to be in this apartment on <laughs> air mattresses right. and you're in all this chaos and you're going to have to disappoint all these people and all this stuff. You would have thought, Oh my God, that sounds horrible. But you're there in that moment and actually realizing we're not there yet, but we did it. Like we're on our way. I'm in a much better place. And that's, that's just a beautiful story. I think it's an encouragement to anyone who's thinking, yeah, but I can't make that change myself. I can't make that transition myself. It's just going to be too hard. It's gonna be too difficult. What if I fail? It's going to suck because um, yeah, you nailed it. There's, it's amazing how little you need when you have 
family and you have your basics and the things that feed your soul. Yeah. And the other thing too, that really helped was by the time we got there, I had just completely done the deep dive into the world of, um, you know, entrepreneurship. Cause I, I felt that like my path was going to, I knew I wasn't going to be teaching at Ringling forever. I didn't realize it would only be one year, but um, you know, I'd sort of gone down this rabbit hole and you learn, you know, it's funny, people always sort of, they crap on guys like Tony Robbins and Gary Vaynerchuk and, you know, uh, but I mean, those guys for all of their, you know, very aggressive marketing tactics, they also spill a ton of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think, I, I think I heard this from Tim Ferriss, but there's this thing called fear setting where you allow yourself to imagine the worst case scenario, just like let yourself spiral out and let's go all the way to the bottom. What happens if we sell our house, move to Florida, blow up toil, take a teaching job, and every single one of those things turns out to have been the wrong move? What happens? What's the worst case scenario? Okay, well, in my mind, it's, uh, you know, turns out I can't actually pay the bills uh, teaching. And, and on top of that, I hate teaching. I mean, like, you can really go to a dark place and say, oh, my God, like, I could be homeless. My children could be hungry. But then if you think about it for two seconds, you're like, okay, well, if that really happened, what would I do? Well, yes. like my parents would a hundred percent let us go live with them for a little bit. And so would my wife's parents. Okay. So we wouldn't be homeless. Would we be hungry? Uh, well, no, because also they would feed us. And that's assuming that you would have $0, which yes. I had, I had freelanced very successfully for, I think seven or eight years at that point. Um, so I knew I could just freelance to make money. And like, and I, and then I also knew by that point that I didn't need much money. So really the worst case scenario was fine. Like it wasn't, you know, like, yeah, it would have been embarrassing to have to like call my parents, Hey guys, you know, we need to come move in for a little bit, but whatever, I could get over that. Uh, the worst case scenario was pretty mild. And so, but, but if you don't go through this exercise, you don't realize that you really are imagining like homelessness and, you know, you're, you're shooting up in an alley somewhere because, you know, it turns out your business failed. In truth, we live in the United States. Like there's just most people have resources around them, friends and family. You're going to have a safety net. And even if you don't, uh, you know, our society has a safety net. So the worst case scenario is generally not poverty, misery, and then followed by death. Yeah. And, and that's a great that's a great, great insight. I, I think as human beings, we have this, these pictures in our head of like, we're telling us our, we're living a life and we want that life to be a good story. And it's really hard for us to accept, but I want the story to look like this. Right. And I, and I would encourage people, well, trust me, you can accomplish most all of your goals, your dreams even, but it may not look like what you thought it was going to look like. So just be really clear about what is it that's actually important? Is it what it looks like? Uh, because you're living a version of life that looks very different than where you were when you were in Boston. Um, but it's ultimately a lot more fulfilling. So you had to embrace a new chapter, um, a new story. So I'm curious now, when you, when you look back, because I'm thinking about School of Motion now, thinking about where you were when you were uh, at Toil, a lot of business owners, whether small or, or large owners, the ones that take your path. Very often they get to this crisis point and they say, you know what, I'm burnt out or my business is failing 
or I'm not, you know, or I, I don't want to do this anymore. And some of them will just exit the industry. Right. They'll just stop. Very common. Right. And the, yeah. And they'll maybe someone like me after 10 or 20 years, you, you, you just say, you know what, I'm going to retire or I'm going to go get a day job or I'm going to go teach or whatever. But a lot of people don't convert their past to create their future. And so I'm curious, when I look at you, do you look back and say, you know, all the, the experience of toil and wringling and everything else, were, did that enable you to take out your experience, your skills, wisdom, even resources, and convert that into school of motion? Because I see this continuity that may not have been so clear to you when you were in the middle of it. But I step back and look at it and I say, of course. Like you're leveraging all of your past to create this new thing that's taking you into the future. But do you see it that way? Yeah, I mean, that, you, that's really insightful. So uh, you just kind of touched on one of my favorite, one of my favorite ideas. Uh, so in hindsight, I do see all of that. Um, it, none of it, literally none of it was intentional. Like, you know, here's, here's my favorite example of this, okay? I, um, when I was freelance before starting Toil, uh, and this was actually this is a viewpoint creative story. I know that you've uh, you know Dave Shillelagh over there. Uh, yeah. So I'm at View, Viewpoint Creative, and I'm doing um, an edit and some motion design for them. And uh, I would always do scratch voiceover tracks um, on my edits. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. you know, I was uh, in a band. Uh, I played drums for over 20 years, and I was in very serious touring bands and stuff. And so I was very comfortable sort of performing, which most editors are not. Like most editors, when they do a scratch track, they just kind of read the track, you know, and get it over with. (laughs) I would try. I would try to make it sound good. And what Viewpoint would do sometimes is they would send uh, a rough cut over to a voiceover talent agency in uh, New York called Atlas Talent and say, hey, we have this promo for Discovery Channel, whatever. Uh, can you recommend some talent? Maybe give us some demos. And an agent over there heard my voice on this rough cut and said, whoa, who's this? The young sounding voice. We like this guy. So long story short, I got signed as a voiceover talent and spent, uh, I had about a 10-year voiceover talent career. Uh, <laughs> this is awesome. Okay. Which, yes, and, the, and that's a whole other podcast, y'all. Uh, <laughs> I literally, I went to a voiceover coach in New York City. But, Okay. That was just this lucky thing that fell in my lap, but it fell in my lap because I was not afraid to perform. I was not afraid to perform because I played drums and was in bands. Now that there's a direct line between that and me being good at making video tutorials. So there is this very strange confluence of events and talents. And so the, the concept that, that I mentioned before that I really like, there's this concept. Again, I think this is another Scott Adams thing. It's called a talent stack. The idea is if you want to be a world famous painter, you've got to be absolutely ridiculously God level at painting. Okay. Because that, that's a very, uh, there's a hockey stick right at the end of the talent pool there. Um, but if you want to be something that's a little more broad, you want to be the best, uh, you know, impressionist online painting instructor, well, that's going to require eight skills, not just one. And mm-hmm. so you can be kind of good at eight things, but no one else is kind of good at that same eight things. And so you that's your talent stack, and everyone has a unique talent stack. So for me, turns out 
my talent stack is I'm okay at voiceovers. I'm not great at it, but I was pretty good at it. I'm confident in front of a microphone and in front of people because I've performed a whole bunch. I'm good at editing because I started as an editor. Uh, I'm good at motion design because that's what I did most of my career. And on top of that, I enjoy teaching, which I don't know where that came from. That's just, that's the thing. That's the gift I was given when I was born. That's that's something I just have, right? So you put those five things together and it makes me good at this strange thing, video tutorials. Now, you know, it's very like, it's kind of obvious now, I think. um, But six or seven years ago, it was not obvious that that could turn into a lucrative business. But yeah, I mean, now that it is, you can draw a straight line from my first drum lesson when I was 11 to now and say, ah, I see how all of these things kind of converge to make you the business owner you are. Um, And, you know, to get back to the point you were making about like some people, you know, one of my favorite producers I used to work with left the industry and became a realtor. Right. It's like totally unrelated. Um, But, you know, I, I, I say people should just do what what makes them happy. And if you can. And who knows, she probably does leverage some of her producing skills she picked up to be a good realtor. I'm sure that there's there's interesting ways that those things come into play. So I don't know that it's required if you switch careers that you try to do something that's just like two steps over from what you were doing so you can still have some skills. I think I think skills transfer over in weird ways that you can't imagine until until you try, yes. you know? Yeah, but I think you're asking the right question. It's like, what is the, what are the skills and the experience? My, even my network, uh, what are all the assets that I have? Yeah. And what does it look like to convert them? I think the sad story is when somebody says, oh, I'm scared, and, they, and that person's offering me a paycheck. And, that's, and there's really no conversion. And they're just letting go of all this experience and, and history and network and so forth because, well, that person's offering me a paycheck. And that's all I really need is security. And, and I'll just go back into the time and effort economy because it's a paycheck and that's what I need. Um, that to me always makes me a little sad. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, even doing that, I think, you know, sometimes if someone really gets to the end of their rope and they just need to decompress for six months and then figure out what's next, you know, of course, maybe it makes sense to just like take a day job somewhere, just pay the bills. Um, but you're totally right. I mean, if your goal, it, I think if someone has intention, then these things kind of sort themselves out, you know, because I think, yep. the, I think the reason that people will take jobs like that is because they don't have any intention. The intention is just, I, I don't even think they have one. I think it's just like, right. well, I'm looking around and I see all these people with money and with things and with status and it seems like that's the score. So I should probably try to make my score higher instead of saying, I want to travel six months a year. That's really important to me. How could I set my life up so that that's possible? Well, yeah, I just got reminded of my favorite Oscar Wilde quote where he says, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist. That is all. Ooh, and I think I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the, the moral or the lesson of that quote is. Uh, most people live without intention. And I think that that's actually the difference. You just nailed it. Is that if you take six months off to reset your life and put yourself in a better position because you have a greater intention, absolutely. Uh, but to live without intention, I think is is to merely exist. And that uh, I don't think that's ever really a good thing, at least not for a long period of time. Exactly. Yeah. That's a beautiful quote, by the way. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> okay. You got it. Um, all right. Well, let me ask this. This is kind of maybe a question to help us start wrapping up. I 
you have a lot of, obviously at School of Motion, you have a lot of resources. You have a lot of things that you're offering. And, and if you want to maybe even give a quick rundown of what's sort of the breadth of the, the courses and, and what level you're even teaching people and inst instructing. Um, but you said something interesting earlier. Remember you talked about the natural evolution. Do you remember when you mentioned that? In other words, a lot of people in our industry, they think, oh, well, I got out of school and of course I'm going to immediately start freelancing or I'm going to immediately start my studio. I mean, some people know, yes, okay, okay, I should go work at a studio, maybe in New York or LA for a few years and then, <laughs> and then do these things. Right. But there is, the, there is this bias, I think, in the creative soul that says, I'm going to do my own thing someday. Mm -hmm. And knowing that that's this whole entrepreneurial bug is also a huge passion of yours. How, how does School of Motion feed and, and help people and creatives prepare for that journey ahead? Sure. So, all right. So really briefly, we, you know, we currently have, I think, 10 classes that you can, that you can register for. We're building a bunch more. Um, we're constantly making new classes and, and our, our end goal and for the right person, we're already there, but our end goal is basically to be a very viable replacement for art school. That's actually kind of, it's, it's kind of like a hobby horse of mine is, trying to save students from the absolute soul-crushing albatross that is student debt. Um, and so that's really yes. important to me. And so we are, we are trying to build literally a soup to nuts curriculum. Someone can come in knowing zero and they can leave and go get hired at their first motion design gig. And the truth is that's already happening, but it's, it's happening in a sort of very narrow lane of motion design. And so we're sort of expanding that, adding a 3D curriculum, uh, some visual effects and compositing sort of stuff. So that's, that's kind of where we're at. So as far as the entrepreneurial side, as far as the classes go, our classes right now, they're very focused on the art. So on the creative side and, and of course, the technical mm -hmm. skills that you need to be able to, to pull it off. What we do as far as trying to help our students and, and you know, our audience um, learn how to exist in this industry, uh, we do that through there's a few ways we do it through, you know, we have tons and tons of articles every week. There's three or four that show up on the site. Um, we have a podcast like this one uh, that, that you have been uh, uh, an honored guest on. And, yeah, um, and uh, you know, and we talk to studio owners. We talk to, um, to people like you who have been studio owners and now have this unique, cool new experience. And we just try to expose the many different ways to exist as a motion designer, Right the vast majority of people are going to start getting a job somewhere. And that's what I recommend. Um, yep. I'm also a huge, huge proponent of freelancing. Uh, yes. I, I actually get into trouble <laughs> sometimes because I'm so pro freelancing. Um, but I mean, honestly, uh, freelancing was the first time in my life when I realized, ah, I'm an entrepreneur. That's, that's mm -hmm. where, and I, that's when I got bitten. Um, I've written a book on freelancing. It's on Amazon called the freelance manifesto. I mean, I really talk a lot about it. And so, you know, and then, and then on the, on the far end, we have lots of interviews with people who own studios. Um, I pretty, pretty recently, I got to talk to uh, Ryan Honey, who uh, was the founder of Buck and, you know, talking yeah. about what it's like running a studio that at the time that we recorded it had 250 employees. Um, so, you know, I try to just, just show everybody all of the options. And I try to be very, very honest about what each of those options are like. Being on staff uh, has a specific spot in your career 
Um, and it could be your entire career, but that that's depends on your personal goals on that intention. If your intention is, and this is, this is kind of the thing that a lot of people, uh, in our industry who are kind of on social media a lot, they don't, what I think they don't realize is that most people in this industry, this, this is just their job. (laughs) All right. Like they like it, they're happy to do it. Uh, they don't obsess over it and write blog posts about it and write tweets about it all day. Um, you know, I do because that's like that's my job. I signed up for that. Um, most artists just go to their studio and they do a great job, and then they go home and they do something else. They go mountain biking. They they play with their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the vast majority of our industry, actually. But for the go getters, uh, I don't think they'll ever be fully satisfied doing that for a long time. And so then freelance is the next natural step. And freelance, uh, you know, I. I, I say a lot about it in our podcast and, and in the book and everything, but I mean, basically my whole thing about freelancing is it's a tool that lets you design your life. It has almost nothing. My, my love of freelancing has almost nothing to do with like, make more money, have more freedom. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, no, you get to decide how much do I want to work? How much do I want to make? What kind of clients do I want to work for? All of those things. Um, and then owning a studio, uh, that's the area where I'm probably not the right person to ask <laughs> about that, uh, because I generally focus on my experience, which, uh, which was, you know, very positive in a lot of ways, but also in, in the end, not, not the right fit. Um, and I don't know, <laughs> I'll say something I might get in trouble for, but to be honest, uh, most of the studio owners I talk to, um, once the, once I stop recording, you know, the, the, the tune does change a little bit sometimes, uh, you know, when they know no one's listening. So I'm sure there, I'm sure there's like a right way to run the studio where it's like just really rewarding and, and the stress is minimized. But I think that that's something that, you know, people are always going to want to have their own business. They're always going to want to do that. I mean, that's kind of like the, that's the ultimate glory as a motion designer is to start a studio and it's your vision, it's your team. And you get to make really awesome stuff with great people every day. Um, and, and if anyone, uh, you know, is trying to do that and needs help, I recommend they call Joel because <laughs> Joel seems to have cracked the code, uh, because there's a right way to do it and a wrong way. And I'm, I'm not the guy to ask about the right way. <laughs> well, I, I think yeah. you're making, I appreciate that, that, that can kinder about when the microphone's off, uh, some of the stories you hear, cause I hear those stories all the time. That's my daily life yeah. is living in that world of helping those, those owners, right. Process those, those issues and challenges. But I've never thought about it in such simple terms that, yeah, if I took one of my clients who runs a studio and put him on a stage at a conference and he's being interviewed, the narrative is actually, it's what you would expect. Oh, we do these kinds of projects and this is our expertise and this is kind of our style. And, you know, you hear all those stories. And, and in effect, that's, that's what the, that owner is being asked or called upon in that moment to talk about. People don't want to hear about making payroll and dealing with taxes or right. uh, the health know, insurance the and yeah. To, yeah, all these, all these things. Um, so that's fine. But I think you're, you're right there. Um, it, it is a, it's an incredible and incredibly challenging and ever evolving journey to be a creative entrepreneur. And in a way, look, you're, you're living it too now, right? You're not running a studio, but you're running a school right. and you're facing all those things every day as well. Um, and you're, you know, fortunately we're hearing the, the good and the bad and the ugly from, from you as well. So I <laughs> appreciate the honesty. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I, I've talked about a lot with, um, with my current business coach is, you know, like the reason you have a business coach is because you're stressed out and you want some help and you want some, some guidance and, and someone to kick your ass every once in a while. 
Um, and a lot of times I'll go to him and I'll say like, I have this, you know, this thing, it's stressing me out. I can't sleep because I have to make this decision and I don't want to. And he kind of just looks at me and he goes, okay, what do you want? And it's this question that I never ask myself. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that one of, um, and, and this could just be me, but I think a lot of, a lot of business owners, especially successful ones get there because they're good at pleasing people right? That's kind of like the point of business yeah. generally to please your customers. And then, but then in the end you have to make choices, especially if you're successful, you are going to have to start saying no a lot more than you're comfortable with. And how do you know when to do that or how to do that? If you don't know what you want, the person running the business. Um, and so the, you know, these studio owners, I mean, I think what they want is to, and it might be a little bit cynical, but I think what, what most of them want initially is that feather in their cap of I started a studio and, and really this is a way where I can increase the scope of the work I'm doing. I can build a team and have a great sort of environment creatively to work within and have more capabilities. And then the budgets will go up and all those things. And cool. If that works, then all of a sudden you're too busy to sit down and design anything. Right. And and you're in this position. I, I found myself in this position where you're on phone calls and conference calls all day long. And if you stop and you say, what do I want? What I want is to sit down and animate again. Well, am I on the path to that? No, you're not. Everything starts to become clear if you just ask yourself the right questions. And it's something amazing how beguiling that little question is. What do you want? Yeah. Because, you know, I think the, the, the surface answer is, well, I want fame and I want fortune and I want freedom and I want, you know, I kind of want it all. And then it's like, no, what is it? what's like the one thing? And then are you willing to compromise and design your life in a way that enables that one big thing? It's like, oh, so even if I want to animate, I can't also spend all day on conference calls and in meetings. And it's like, no, you can't. And once you realize that's okay, you have a choice to make. And yeah. what's, what's that? It's back to what's your intention? What's your intention? Exactly. Yeah. And, and the, you know, sort of the version of that for me with School of Motion was initially it was just me. And I was, you know, I was nobody like nothing I ever did in my client career got featured on motionographer. I never won an award. I was blue collar motion designer, (laughs) right? Like just (laughs) just get get it done. Yeah. In Boston, getting it done. And, um, you know, I, I started school motion. I started making tutorials and, you know, after about a year they caught on, I had an audience, I had fans, you know, good Lord. I had people uh, emailing me and asking me for advice and it was so much fun. And I, it was, you know, and, and there's an ego part of that too. I mean, it's very nice to be noticed and to feel like, Oh my gosh, like I'm kind of a little bit of a motion design celebrity. This is great. And when school motion started to grow, uh, I found that I basically ran out of time. I could not make videos anymore. And mm-hmm. I thought if I'm not making videos, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be, uh, as famous. I'm not going to be as well known, um, as all of these other people that are making videos one a week, you know, and look at how many YouTube followers they have. And I don't. And, but then the, the secret was, but I was actually running a profitable business. And so at that point, uh, I actually had to make the conscious choice to not make school of motion, the Joey show. And now, um, you know, I think it's pretty obvious if you go to school of motion, we feature everybody else before we feature Joey. But at the time when we, when it started, it wasn't obvious that that was the right thing. And it felt very alien to say, okay, I'm going to pay someone else to make a tutorial for school of motion. That seems weird, but I, but I, you know, what did I want? 
I wanted this to be my full-time job. I wanted to be able to pay my bills with this. And so I was willing to make that sacrifice. So just asking the right question led me to make a choice that initially I had a lot of reluctance to do. I'm reminded that my friend Will Travis was talking about how the way that he ran Attic, which is a studio back in the day. Yeah. And it sounds like you're, you're living a similar story. And that is, he said, you know, I never really wanted the spotlight myself. Instead, I wanted to build the stage on which others performed. It's a great and it way sounds like it's yeah. a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of what you're doing is that you're, you're realizing, sure. I mean, it feels good to, to be in the spotlight and be the, the guy that's making the videos and stuff. But if that's preventing you from, from scale and from freedom and from all these other goals you might have, and then you realize, wow, I can celebrate all these diff- other instructors that put them in the spotlight and make them th- the heroes. And it makes this whole thing scale and it adds, of course, breadth and uh, so forth. Then, then you're winning, right? Then, then that's, that's, a, that's a good life. And it sounds like that's your current intention. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, our, everything that we're doing today, it's, it's, it's basically just a scaled up version of that, you know, perfect day exercise that my wife and I did in Massachusetts many, many years ago. I mean, we're still in Florida. Um, you know, I'm still running school of motion. I still ride my bike to work, uh, when it's not super duper swampy, like it is today, today I drove, (laughs) but my, but you know, I have an office, a small office. It's just me. Uh, and it's five miles from my house. I can be there even on a bike in about 18 minutes and there's palm trees on the way and I get here and no one's telling me when I have to show up, when I have to leave, uh, you know, it's totally remote and it's just, it's, it's just the life that we designed. We literally like set out to do this, um, and just checked off boxes one by one. And I feel like that's kind of the superpower that, that we were able to acquire, going through the sort of the, you know, the fire and brimstone of, of the toil days and, and just total, total burnout, um, blowing up the old life, starting a new one and rebuilding it with intention. And, and here we are. Um, so I highly recommend it to, to everybody. listening. I know it's easy, easier said than done. Um, but you know, it's like, if you don't try, it's not going to happen. Yeah, just yeah, I recommend a year of turmoil for, to everyone out there who uh, who wants to get to the other side. Yeah, <laughs> but, just you know, hell for one year. It's a small price. Yeah, I mean, you know, come on, you can you can get through it, heads down, and and make it happen. Well, look, I mean, I congratulate you and celebrate you making this transition, and I love that School of Emotion is out there, um, and that it comes from someone who's spent time and years in the industry. That you're a fellow uh, fan of the industry, right? You love this industry, just like. I do. And so many of us and, and what you're doing is very cool. I can't wait to see where it goes because I just see it continuing to grow and evolve and become this resource that is going to continue to serve the industry and prepare people. Um, so we're, I think the industry is, is thankful for what you're doing as well. So I'm going to say thank you on, 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 on its behalf. Oh, I appreciate that. That means a lot, Joel. And, and thank you so much for, uh, for letting me come on and, and ramble like this. This is a lot of fun. I hope, I hope everyone listening got at least something <laughs> useful out of this. Oh, no doubt. Well, I'm amazed how, I mean, we, we have so, we have so much that we could talk about, right? We just, um, yeah, there's so many paths and, and topics that we could go down. I almost feel frustrated that we, we have to wrap it up. Yeah. Okay. So school that's where, that's where people can, can learn more. What else, what else do you like to point people to, to your podcast or some, any other resources or links that you have? 
Yeah, so if you're into uh, motion design, then the School of Motion podcast is is the podcast I host, and we interview artists and studio owners and stuff like that. We really focus on the craft of, of motion design, a little bit of the business stuff, but um, mostly the craft. And also, uh, if you like hearing Joel's voice, he was a guest on that. You can find that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would point people there. Uh, there's a lot of info on the website. And then, you know, anyone listening to this who's, you know, an entrepreneur, uh, if you're going through anything similar to what I described, um, uh, my just email me. It's just joey at schoolofmotion.com. My email inbox sometimes becomes a war zone. So uh, I cannot promise you I will respond to everybody, um, but I do try because there were, you know, quite a few people I emailed when I was starting that I did not expect to reply to me and they did. And it meant so much. And so I really do try to pay it forward in that way. So if I can be of help to anybody, please reach out to me. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a fan of the podcast. I appreciate the fact that you're, you're doing it and you're bringing some really great voices uh, into the conversation. And um, of course, I was grateful to be uh, one of your guests. That was a lot of fun. In fact, I got a lot of feedback and a lot of responses from that. So it's cool to see that your audience is very vibrant and and listening. Yeah, definitely. They're, they're an engaged bunch. <laughs> That's right. Well, Joey, man, you're awesome. Thank you for what you do. Thanks for being on the, the podcast. I know uh, there's a lot of people that are, are probably appreciate hearing this side of your story. So I appreciate you being open and vulnerable and sharing, you know, sort of the, uh, the the good, the bad, the ugly, and obviously where you're at right now, there's a lot of good. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I, I, I know that there was a lot of doom and gloom today. Like, just so everyone knows, it's going really well. And on the, ne- the next time I come on RevThink, we'll talk about all of the uh, all of the successes and all of that. But I think sometimes it's it's better to hear, uh, you know, the the dirty underbelly side too. Um, you yeah, know, I think that I think people need to hear that it's it's not always uh, just roses. Well, I look forward to uh, wherever our next next conversation is, either on uh, on this podcast or on yours. So uh, that'll be good. Right on. You've been listening to the Rev Thinking Podcast. For more information on upcoming accelerators, events, or to learn how RevThink advises creative entrepreneurs like you, connect with us at RevThink.com. 